Welcome to episode 41 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. About one in three patients with depression are going to struggle to get better with the common treatments that are used. So psychological treatments, counselling, psychotherapy, and the various antidepressant medications. Hi. I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking to Professor Paul Fitzgerald about transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. We recorded this episode in November 2021, and at the time, Professor Fitzgerald was the director of the Epworth Center for Innovation in Mental Health. At the time of this publication, he is in the process of transitioning to a role as the director of the School of Medicine and Psychology at the Australian National University, through which you can contact him. Also, since the recording of this conversation, the Australian government has added TMS to the rebate scheme, as Professor Fitzgerald mentioned. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au, a modern and approachable mental health directory, helping Australians connect with the right mental health practitioners. All of the practitioners, so that psychologists, psychotherapists and counsellors, are available to see clients straight away. There are no waiting lists. They're all independent, licensed and insured and available for online or in-person consultations. On TalkLink, you can watch a short video of each therapist to get to know them a little, check out their training and experience, as well as their pricing in a transparent way to decide whether this is someone that you would like to connect with. Okay, let's dive in. So TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation is basically a way of stimulating and trying to change brain activity. So unlike ECT, which involves the application of an electrical current to the brain, TMS involves using a very strong focused pulsed magnetic field. Magnetic fields actually pass through us without any resistance. We don't notice, you know, if we go into an MRI scanner, we don't know, we don't feel the magnetic field that goes through us. Um, and so uh, TMS relies on this very unusual principle that if you switch an electrical current on and off, you generate a magnetic field. But then if you apply that magnetic field to something that conducts electricity, you actually induce an electrical current. So it's almost like a trick to get the, to get the electrical stimulation into the brain without actually having to electrically stimulate the head. So essentially what happens is this coil sits on your head, it generates this strong magnetic field that passes into your brain, um, that stimulates activity or makes the nerve cells in your brain fire. In a really simplistic way, if we just do a single pulse on the area of the brain that controls the muscles in your hand, for example, it'll make those nerve cells fire and that will send a signal down to cause a muscle twitch. If we stimulate the back of the head, we maybe can induce a sensation of people seeing the flashes of light. Um, but when we're using TMS as part of a treatment, we're not trying to just induce that transient activity. We're trying to repeatedly stimulate the brain to change its activity. So we're targeting an area at the front of the brain that we think is involved in depression. And we're applying many thousands of these pulses across the course of treatment. And by repeatedly stimulating nerve cells, we're hoping to change their activity and through that to produce therapeutic benefits or to try to resolve somebody's depression. Right. So, Okay, there's a lot of parts to this I want to dive into. There's a part of my inner science geek that just has to ask the question, if you put a magnet on your hand, there's obviously no reaction. The magnet doesn't stick to your hand. There's no observable um, in interference with your hand. So how and why do magnets have an impact on our brain? And can you dive into that science a little bit? 
Sure, absolutely. So the first thing to, to note is this is not a static magnet. So it's not like a magnet that you use to pick up a, a paper clip. What this is an electromagnet. So it's a change in electrical current that's generating the magnetic field. And that magnetic field is actually only generated for a very, very short period of time. So if I actually applied this type of magnetic field to my hand, I would actually stimulate the nerves going through my hand and I'd actually feel it as a sort of tapping or twitching sensation. So it's very different than a static magnetic field. Hmm. So what am I visualizing here? Your patients come into a room, what's going to happen to them? Yeah, so I'll come into a room, there's a reclining chair, so they relax back in the reclining chair, they put a, some earplugs in because the machine can be a little bit noisy. There's a fairly large um, coil which looks a bit like a very old-fashioned, the shape of an old-fashioned key ring, it's, sort of, it's got two sort of round um, uh, circles on it. That's placed usually at the front part of the brain, wired up to a machine which is sitting next to the chair. Um, and then they basically are uh, just to just to relax. They can listen to some music or close their eyes and relax. They will feel a sensation. I said before the magnetic fields go through us without us noticing. But in this case, because the magnetic field's quite strong, it actually can stimulate the nerves in the scalp itself. And so we do get a sensation from that. Um, the the best analogy I've I've heard to that is people describing it like having a little woodpecker sitting banging away on the front of their head. That can be completely benign. Some patients, you know, we literally have people who will fall asleep during treatment. They'll just sort of doze off or find it sort of quite relaxing. But occasionally, you know, two, three, four patients out of 100 will find that sensation quite uncomfortable. If it happens to be right on a nerve, um, it can even be painful. But that's, but that's unusual, but, but it can happen. Um, and then they'll sit in the chair while I have the course of treatment, which usually takes about half an hour or so. And then uh, when, when it's finished, they can get up and, leave you can drive afterwards you can go home there's no anesthetic or any requirements for observations afterwards so i guess that's one of the big distinctions and differentiation between ect so electroconvulsive therapy um, and tms because after ect you've of course just gone through anesthesia so you can't stand up so um if someone's had tms is there any sort of immediate side effect not typically. Some people who find who find it most uncomfortable get a bit of a headache. Um, the stimulation is stimulating the nerves and muscles in the scalp. Um, and we get tension headaches if we're constantly contracting the nerves and muscles in our scalp. That's sort of why people get tension headaches. Um, and so it can sometimes mimic that sensation of a sort of a bit of a dull headache. And some people will take Panadol or, or Nurofen afterwards, but really there's no specific restrictions on, you know, ability to go and, and get on with people's day. I usually will say to patients who are having treatment for the first time, look, afterwards, don't go and jump in your car straight away. Maybe go to the corner coffee shop and have, a, you know, a, a cup of coffee and something to eat before you go home. But we will literally have people who will come in for treatment during lunch hour from work, um, you know, or we'll have to rush off to other things. And that's, you know, um, not, not a problem at all. And while this woodpecker's pecking away and the magnet's doing its job, are, is the patient experiencing any emotional reaction other than the physical pecking? Not typically. Um, we're not really activating a circuit that induces a circuit, you know, an area of the brain that induces a direct sensation or a direct feeling. So people don't typically report any immediate change in their emotions. Okay. 
All right, I, I do want to dive into the comment you made there about activating the circuit, but maybe we've put the cart before the horse. Can we go back a step? Um, why would someone be a patient for TMS? What does it solve? Unfortunately, the problem it solves is quite a big one. Um, wish it wasn't wasn't the case, but but we we do have a pressing need for treatments like TMS for two reasons. The first one everyone's mostly familiar with, which is that depression is just a really common condition. You know, groups like Beyond Blue have done a really good job at letting the public know how common depression a problem is. And it's now become part of the, you know, sort of community discussion. You know, it's uh, quite frequent that we'll have a politician or a sports person or someone prominent in the community, you know, in the media talking about their depression. The thing that's far less well recognized is that the treatments that we currently have for depression, although they are effective for some people, just don't work for everybody. And we typically expect that about one in three patients with depression are going to struggle to get better with the, the common treatments that are used. So by that, I'm talking about psychological treatments, counselling, psychotherapy, and the various antidepressant medications that, that get prescribed. And once you've tried a number of antidepressant medications, be that two or three, the chances of the next one working are pretty low. And so there is this really significant group of patients who have depression, who do all the right things, they go and see a psychologist, they get counselling, they take their antidepressant medication and they don't get better. And really that's the group for whom TMS is targeted. We're not, we're not suggesting that people have TMS when they've never had any other treatment because it's a pretty inconvenient treatment. You know, you have to come into the clinic and have this machine on your head for half a day every day for a course of treatment. Um, but it's really targeted at this fairly large group of people who are struggling to get better with, that, with other treatments. Okay, so this third, when would you decide whether someone should go through ECT or uh, TMS? What's that decision point? So often that decision point's made based upon practical features, but there are some clinical um, elements to that question as well. You know, TMS is still relatively new and, is, and it hasn't been widely available. It's, it's rapidly becoming much more available now and that will continue to change over the coming, you know, coming years. And I think it will become a much more viable alternative um, for these patients in, in the years to come. East, the selection of ECT in those patients tends to be more driven by um, issues to do with what we call acuity. So patients who are really requiring a very rapid antidepressant response because they're you know, severely depressed, they might have suicidal, you know, quite prominent suicidal thoughts and feelings, or they're struggling to get out of bed and, and function in any meaningful way. So those patients will often go relatively quickly to ECT, whereas really TMS is now becoming a viable alternative for pretty much for everybody else. And you know, the existing, the existing reality is that only, ECT is only being used in a very, very small percentage of patients with depression. Most of those other patients who fall into this category of, you know, difficult to treat depression, they're, they're actually not having ECT. What they're having is just repeated trials of, you know, the third medication and the fourth medication and the fifth medication. They might be on combinations of medications. Um, and that works for some people, but it doesn't work for, for, for many, many of those patients. And so the great thing about TMS becoming more widely available is just having more choice, having, you know, something that may well work when these, these medications aren't 
being successfully utilised. And it sounds like a fairly uh, non-invasive alternative. I guess if I were in that position, I would maybe consider, and I'm sure many of our listeners might be connecting this as well. If, if you're in a, a major depressive space, you might choose to try TMS first before ECT. Would that be a logical way to approach it? So, so I think, you know, unless there are some of those issues around acuity, because ECT is likely to work somewhat quicker, um, yes, I think the answer is for a significant percentage of patients, probably the majority of patients, trying a course of TMS prior to progressing to ECT makes sense. It's certainly safer, has few side effects, is better tolerated. However, you know, part of that mix is, is availability and um, ECT has been around for a very long period of time, is available in most hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. TMS is now becoming much more widely available. And so hopefully that, that balance for people is just now becoming a more viable one, that this is something they can try before they progress to ECT. Yeah, okay. Uh, Professor, could you tease apart the the duration of the treatment a little bit? And I guess, um, could you juxtapose that against the ECT alternative and, and, and just give our listeners a sense of how long this therapy is, both in terms of its individual sessions and also in terms of the entire course? Yeah. So really the the practical issues with TMS are the biggest ones in the sense that, you know, as I said before, it's safe, it's effective, it's very well tolerated typically. The biggest challenge is actually just practical. So what it actually typically will involve is a session of treatment, which is about a half an hour, um, done Monday to Friday over the course of usually at least four weeks. So you really need, you know, 20 treatments, which is four weeks, you know, done Monday to Friday to get a meaningful clinical benefit. And there are certainly patients who will go on even longer than that. So, you know, a standard full course of treatment is usually around six weeks or 30 treatments, sometimes with a few treatments otherwise as you kind of wean off, off therapy. Um, in terms of when you would expect to get benefit during that time, you know, the most common time that we see people starting to improve is about after around the two-week mark. So some patients will respond early, some will respond late, but the most typical thing is by about two weeks, people are starting to, to notice some clarity in their thoughts, some, some greater motivation and interest in sort of, you know, just general life activities and so forth. With ECT, you know, an average course of ECT is probably around nine or 10 treatments, which is about three weeks. So it's about half the duration of a course of, of TMS treatment. However, if we look at the other alternative, which is, you know, another trial of medication, you know, most doctors are going to be saying you go on to your, say your fourth or your fifth antidepressant, you're going to be taking that for a sort of six to eight week course of, of, of therapy before you decide, you know, whether, whether that's working or not. So that's probably comparable, more comparable to the time it's going to take to get an answer out of, out of trying TMS. Now, what are some of the downsides of TMS maybe in the longer term? So from a side effect perspective, very little. The only real significant side effect that we're aware of or risk with TMS is the possibility that it could actually do what ECT does and actually trigger a seizure. Now, with TMS, that's something we wouldn't want to happen. We're not trying to induce a seizure. And in fact, but, but it can happen because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make the brain more active. And if we overdo that, if we overtreat, we're going to start to make the nerve cells in the brain fire spontaneously, and that could trigger a seizure. Fortunately, that's just extremely rare. I've been 
doing TMS, involved in clinical trials and treating patients with TMS for over 20 years, and I haven't had a single patient experience a seizure. The risks are you know, very, very low, but, it, but they're possible. Besides that risk, there's really no other significant um, side of, and, and, and besides that and the issues around headache that we talked about or, or just pain during treatment, there aren't really other significant side effects that we're aware of. TMS doesn't cause any problems with memory or thinking. That's really been investigated very carefully with very rigorous research. In fact, what we tend to find when we treat a group of patients with, um, with TMS, we tend to find improvements in various aspects of their memory and thinking. Most of those improvements will correlate with changes in mood. In other words, if your depression gets better, your thinking gets better. But interestingly, over time, we've actually found some improvements in thinking that didn't seem to be directly related to improvement in depression. And that, amongst other lines of research, has led to a lot of interest in whether TMS can be used as a, as a treatment to improve cognition itself. And so there's a lot of research, including research we're doing now, going on using TMS as a treatment for cognitive disorders, disorders like Alzheimer's disease or people who've had cognitive impairment after a traumatic brain injury. So clearly from a cognitive perspective, unlike ECT, TMS is very, is very safe. From a, a longer term perspective, we now have patients who've been treated, um, some of them repeatedly with you know, different episodes of depression um, for well over a decade and a half in Australia and, and um, even longer overseas. So you know, some patients getting up to 20 years of having courses of TMS and really there's been no evidence of any emerging long-term side effects whatsoever. So it certainly seems to be quite safe from that perspective. Um, how long could a patient expect to feel the improvement from a course? Yeah, like pretty much every treatment we have for depression, TMS is not curative. And we, we don't have any way of curing depression at the current time. So whether you take medication, whether you had TMS, whether you have a course of ECT, there is a pretty good chance that your depression will come back some point in the future. And when that happens tends to be extremely individually variable. So for one patient, it might be after three months. The next patient, it might be after three years. Um, with TMS, there's a small group of patients where their depression comes back relatively quickly. There's a small group of patients where their depression stays away for very long periods of time. I've had patients come back after four or five years and their depression is starting to come back for the first time then. They've come back for another course of treatment. And there's sort of everybody in the middle. Um, so lots of patients who will end up having a course of treatment, you know, repeated course of treatment, maybe once a year or once every 18 months or once every two years. So there's kind of a bit of a, of a spread, um, which includes early, sort of in the middle and, and, and longer term benefit, which is not that um, different to what you might expect with other forms of depression treatment. Hmm. And what's the pathway, at least in Australia, for accessing this treatment? Who would qualify and how would they get to the point of receiving the treatment? What are the different professionals involved and who pays at different stages? So the regulatory guidelines in Australia for access for TMS um, state that these, these machines, this treatment can be provided to patients who've not responded to two courses of medication treatment. 
Um, this that varies slightly around the world. In America, it's after one failed medication, but in Australia, it's two medications. And that can be, you know, patients have had two medications and the medications haven't worked, or they've tried a number of medications and they've just experienced significant side effects from repeated courses of medication. That's a not uncommon um, situation we find ourselves in. TMS is typically prescribed by a psychiatrist and provided usually within a sort of specialist clinical environment. And we'll talk a little bit about where those environments are at the moment. So it is a specialty treatment, although increasingly we will have um, GPs um, referring into that specialist environment. But typically there would be a psychiatrist involved in assessing the patient, um, making sure that they're suitable for the treatment, making sure that it fits appropriately into their other treatments. You know, it's not a standalone treatment. Patients might be having, you're still having counseling or psychotherapy. They might still be on medication. So we have to weigh up all of those factors and then prescribing the course of treatment itself. If you went to have TMS pretty much anywhere else in the world, um, 95 or 100% of patients would be having treatment on an outpatient basis. So that means you would turn up at a clinic for that half an hour once a day for you know, the weeks that you're having your treatment. TMS for financial reasons has evolved in a very strange way in Australia because until, until sort of now, really, it hasn't been funded through the Medicare system. Um, it's, it's been quite expensive for patients to access treatment on an outpatient basis. They would have to pay out of pocket. Um, and so what's happened to, to um, adapt to that situation is pretty much all, of, all or most of the private psychiatric hospitals around the country have started to offer TMS to inpatients in their hospitals. So if you have private health insurance, you can get admitted to um, really any one of dozens of private hospitals around the country, and the hospital will provide you a course of TMS treatment for free. They won't charge you for the treatment um, because they're being reimbursed quite significantly through the private insurer who's paying for them to look after you in the, um, in the hospital as part of your sort of episode of care. Now, um, you don't necessarily need to be in hospital for that month that you're having treatment, but it might be the only financially viable way that you can access a course of treatment because you may not be able to afford to pay for it out of pocket. Now, if you don't have private health insurance, you're in a real pickle because um, you, know, you can't um, go into that hospital system because it's prohibitive, prohibitively expensive and you may not be able to afford to pay out of pocket the, the, you know, the costs of a course of TMS treatment. So until really now, um, TMS access and accessibility in Australia has been really patchy. Um, there's been you know, the majority of treatment happening in the private hospital system and a small number of patients paying out of pocket for outpatient treatment and a few small insurers and, and government insurance agencies like you know, um, road traffic insurers or work cover type insurers who have been supporting some outpatient treatment. We're now in the fortunate situation that the Medicare Services Advisory Committee, who evaluates new treatments, um, approved TMS for um, public funding about a year and a half ago. And in the very recent federal government, the federal budget, the federal government has committed to funding um, the rollout of TMS treatment. There was a $283 million commitment to funding TMS. The expectation um, is that TMS will go on to the Medicare benefit schedule in November of this year, so November of 2021, although there's a pretty complicated process for that to happen, and I think there's still a reasonable possibility that might 
um, take until the until early 2022. Um, so that will dramatically increase um, affordability and accessibility of TMS, but there are still going to be some restrictions, and it's 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 a fantastic. Um, uh, thing that's happened, but it's still not perfect in that the way in which it's being funded will provide significant accessibility, but there, but, um, there are some issues around that that we can get into if you want to discuss those. Well, firstly, I think that's great news to hear that it's opened up on the Medicare rebate um, scheme and that there's access to it in the new future. Um, could you give us our listeners some sense between now and then or between now and maybe they won't qualify, what the cost structure could look like for a course? Yeah, so patients who are paying out of pocket um, for outpatient TMS as it currently stands tend to pay about somewhere between sort of $170 and $210 per treatment. So um, I certainly know some of the hospital treatment providers who are charging TMS Clinics Australia, which has TMS clinics around three states of Australia, tends to charge about $180 per treatment. So it's in that sort of ballpark. So for 20 treatments, you're looking at somewhere between three and a half to $4,000 per treatment. So so it's a fairly significant, you know, out-of-pocket treatment cost as it currently stands. Yeah, yeah, that certainly is. So uh, it's great to hear that it's becoming more available than on the Medicare rebate scheme. Okay, so you'll have to take us in a deeper dive, please, because right now the image I have in my mind, and I'm sure many of our listeners might have a similar concept, is of this magnet sitting on the side of someone's head, uh, and it seems like a pretty blunt tool. It seems fairly agricultural. How detailed can you be in stimulating different parts of your brain? For those of our listeners that are really interested in, in the anatomy, could you maybe do a little deeper dive in in that and give us some sense for which parts of the brain we're stimulating, whether you can stimulate or whether you can uh, attenuate signals, so lower signals in certain parts of the brain, uh, and just how that's done and how accurate you can be. Uh, Can you really target down to the specific parts of your brain that you need to stimulate, or is this sort of just shoot from the hip and hope that you're sort of in the right area? So very happy to get into the weeds with some of the science. And so feel free to ask us as many follow-on questions as, as you like. To give you a, a bit of a concrete example of the degree of refinement of what we can potentially do, I'll go back to that example of stimulating the, the motor cortex or the muscle area of the brain and inducing a twitch in the hand. So if I turn the machine up really high, I'll activate a whole whole lot of that so-called motor cortex and and I'll get the whole hand to move and I'll get multiple uh, muscles in the hand to move simultaneously. As I reduce the intensity and I I reduce the area of the magnetic field, the size of the magnetic field, I will be able to focus that down to be able to selectively stimulate the area of the brain that controls just one of the muscles in the hand so that I can produce a quite specific twitch of that muscle itself. And then I will be able to continue to reduce it down to stimulate that same muscle to the point where the person might actually feel a muscle twitch or they, and they may not see anything if they're looking at that muscle of the hand, but I can detect the electrical activity in that muscle because I'm just getting a few of the muscle fibers to be stimulated because I'm now stimulating with a very small magnetic field and just picking up some of the nerve cells that innovate that muscle rather than all of the nerve cells that innovate the muscle. So why I'm sharing that information is really to talk about 
that the strength of the magnetic field really determines the size of the area of the brain that we're going to stimulate. So we can use that to try to be more or less specific. And how specific we are is also determined by the shape of the coil itself. So there are different types of coils and they will, they will stimulate basically larger or smaller areas of the brain. And they will actually stimulate deeper or more shallower areas of the brain as well. And so there's been a lot of work done over time in sort of selecting the best shaped magnetic field, the best type of, of current that goes through that magnetic field to try to be the most selective in the way, the way in which we do this. Having said all of that, we did start with a pretty rough way of targeting the brain and we've gradually improved on that over time. What actually happened in the first studies that used TMS for depression back now many, many years ago is that they found that muscle area of the brain by stimulating and trying to induce a muscle twitch. And then by looking at MRI scans, they had a pretty good idea of where the area they wanted to target was relative to the, this motor cortex. And they realized it was about five centimeters forward um, in the brain. And so they literally just moved the coil five centimeters forward and said, well, that will get us kind of where we, roughly where we want to be. And that basic method worked. People got better and that was good enough to kind of get us through clinical trials and get TMS approved. But there's been a lot of science done in the intervening years and I, th and I think we can do things better now and I think we do things in a much more sort of scientific way and I'll talk a little bit about what we know now about some of this circuitry. For a start we know that that traditional method left the coil a little bit too far back in the brain for a lot of people. So we know now if we go a little bit further forward and often a little bit more to the side, we tend to get a better clinical response. And we get a clinical response, better clinical response, because we're more effectively tapping into the circuits that seem to be quite specific for, um, for depression. So we know that if we do, if we take someone and we go into a brain scanner and we look at the circuits that, that are abnormally active or, or connected or disconnected in people with depression. There's one area of the brain that really stands out. There's an area of the brain very deep down called the subgenual anterior cingulate. So the, the name doesn't particularly matter, but think about this as one of the really critical hubs in the brain for, for depression. It's pretty much universally overactive. If you scan patients with depression, this area of the brain will almost universally be overactive. And if somebody gets better, if they get better with psychotherapy, if they get better with ECT, if they get better with medication, the area, the activity in this area, the brain will drop back to a more normal sort of level. And this is, it's considered such a critical area for depression. It's one of the areas that's targeted in studies that have tried to do deep brain stimulation, where they'll implant electrodes into the brain to try to change brain activity to, to treat depression. So if you look at this particular so-called hub or critical area of the brain in depression, it's connected to this area of the surface of the brain that we're, that we're um, stimulating. And we can map that connection um, when we put someone in a brain scanner and we just get them to sit at rest and we look at the spontaneous fluctuations in activity levels in the brain. There'll be an area in everybody in this frontal part of the brain that seems to be working in some, in some way in sync with this hub um, deeper down in the brain. And the closer we are to stimulating this area, 
the better we, the more likely we are to get a, a very good antidepressant clinical response. And so we're starting to understand that if we improve our, the sophistication of our targeting, you know, targeting these specific connections and these, this specific wiring in the brain, we're going to get better clinical outcomes. And there are ways of doing that. You know, we can take somebody's MRI scan and there is equipment called neuronavigational tracking where we can, we sit somebody in a room, their brain scans on a computer, they're sitting in a chair with their head kept still, they can't move their head around. And there's a camera that's tracking their head in three-dimensional space. And what we can do is we put a sent, we can put a sensor on their head and the, and the camera measures where their head is in this three-dimensional space. And then we register their head to their brain, which is in the software. And then we can use that to actually work out extremely accurately with a one millimeter degree of accuracy where the, when we put a coil on their head, what area is underneath the coil in their brain. And we can look on their brain scan and we can move the coil around until we get right on the particular target that we want to treat. And that way we can either, you know, look at a piece of it, look at their neuroanatomy and say, you know, this particular brain area of the brain we want to treat, or we can look at some of this circuitry and use that to guide how we want to treat. And so we can treat in a much more sophisticated way. Now, some of those methods aren't being used widely in clinical practice yet because they're more expensive and they're more complicated, but they've taught us to know in general where it's better to target and they give us a guidance for where we're going in the future. And I think there will be, there are increasingly clinical applications of this type of sophisticated technology to improve how we do TMS. And that's gradually changing the sort of the way the treatment's done and, and will continue to do so over the coming years. So if you don't calibrate the machine to that degree, is it a big deal if you're off by a few millimeters? isn't because um, we over one of the things that's changed over time over the last two decades of developing TMS is that as we've realized how safe it is we've been able to treat at higher intensities because we've gradually established that higher intensities are safe are safe so over time the intensity of treatment's gone up which actually increases somewhat the area of the brain that we're stimulating so that relatively small differences in position probably matter not that much and we and we still don't know you know exactly you know if we're not doing that mapping we don't know exactly the pinpoint that we want to be on so having a degree of variability in the localization probably is not necessarily a bad thing um, we also know that there's a possibility uh, emerging from some of our research now that there might be more than one ideal target um, in in the brain and that it that actually might even vary with symptoms, that one particular target in the brain might be a better circuitry for resolving the, the real problems with mood and motivation that patients with depression have. There may be a slightly disconnected area of the frontal part of the brain. With the, when we stimulate that area of the brain, we get a greater reduction in anxiety and some of the physical symptoms of depression. So getting a bit of a, an overlap of these multiple areas is probably not a bad thing. Um, we may end up getting to a, to a degree of sophistication where we target them separately. We even have, you know, somebody comes in and depending on their symptoms, we determine that we want to target it target one or target two, or we target both of those targets in, in some patients. But that's really for the future. For now, what we know is that even with the more 
you know, simplistic methods of targeting, we get really good response rates. And that's um, the, the, the kind of the most important thing for sort of for 2021. But we're always looking for, for where the field's going to be going in the coming years. For a technology that's as precise and potentially as safe as what you're saying, um, I'm sure many of our listeners as well as myself is wondering right now, surely there's other conditions that might be improved as well through this technology. What's on the horizon for TMS and what are some of the other potential ailments, mental health issues that could be improved? So if you think, think of any condition that affects the brain, be it a, um, a psychological, psychiatric mental health condition or a neurological condition, I think I will be able to find somebody in the world who has tested some form of TMS in that condition. Um, you're right, it's, you know, it's a really obvious thing to think about how do we use this to target other areas of, other areas of the brain, how do we use it to target other, other conditions. And uh, let, let me perhaps start with the one, the, the first, well, the, really the second after depression, the second condition that has made its way through now to clinical practice somewhere in the world. Um, and that's a condition called obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. Um, OCD is a surprisingly common condition. It's not really talked about much in popular discourse, but affects about 2% of our population. Um, about half of those patients will struggle with, with existing treatments. There's not a lot of treatments for OCD. And there's really not a lot of treatments in development for OCD. If you go, you know, there are big farmers tr still trying to develop new drugs for depression, but they're not, you know, OCD is sort of one of these conditions that, that hasn't really been the focus of things like new drug development. And so fortunately, TMS has been shown to be an effective treatment for OCD. Again, it's not curative, can, but can make a, a meaningful difference to the symptoms of patients with OCD. And so two years ago, that was approved for clinical use in the US. And we're just starting to see some clinical programs using TMS um, in the treatment of OCD um, rolling out now in Australia as well. Um, the third condition that's got FDA approval in the US now is actually for to assist in smoking cessation of all things. There's been a, um, a whole series of studies looking at whether TMS can help in modulating some of the problems that patients with addictive disorders have, particularly reducing cravings and trying to reduce some of the impulsivity that, that is problematic in, pay, in individuals resisting um, returning to drinking or using cocaine or cannabis or, or even smoking. Um, and so a particular type of TMS coil um, made by a manufacturer that's not yet available in Australia um, has been shown to significantly reduce the likelihood that someone will, re will return to smoking um, once, they've, once they've tried to quit. Um, there are, as I indicated before, lots of other areas in which there are trials going on. There's um, studies that have been done in um, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. There's some very interesting research in patients with um, chronic or persistent uh, schizophrenia, particularly patients who have um, auditory hallucinations. So this is um, very troublesome, often extremely distressing symptom where patients will just continue to hear one or more people talking to them as if they hear, you know, people in the real world. It, it sounds as real, as real as my voice talking to you today. And we know that if we target an area of the brain involved in processing 
um, auditory memory in particular, and we downregulate. So unlike depression, where we're trying to upregulate or increase activity of the brain, we're trying to downregulate at this very specific area of the brain. We can reduce the experience of of, of auditory hallucination. So there's really a whole range of these um, applications that are either under under sort of active investigation, clinical trials. Or, or where there's already some sort of really promising data. And I, I mentioned earlier on sort of Alzheimer's disease, which is an area that we're continuing to do research in as well. So, so, so lots going on in, uh, on in this space at the moment. Hmm. Sounds like a very fast growing space with a lot of promise, uh, which, is, which is great. Um, I, I know that some of our listeners are going to want me to ask this question. So, um, so bear with me um, while I, I sort of map this out. Um, there's a lot of alternative medicines which involve the use of magnets, be that in pillows or um, sections of fabric that you drape over your body or your head in different ways. Could you maybe talk us through what, what your thoughts are on that and what the science says on its promise and its efficacy? So the first thing I'll say is there is a very, very big gulf between um, what we're talking about today, TMS, and those those sorts of applications of, of magnets. So, you know, we're providing a an ex, uh, um, a magnetic field strength that is really just a magnitude greater um, than a, a, a so-called static magnet. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say. So I don't think the effectiveness of TMS says anything about the effectiveness of those sorts of m magnet treatments. Um, there is some middle ground um, between the two where people have tried to investigate the effects of quite strong static magnets on various biological tissues, um, including the brain. So these are not, again, pr probably not necessarily the same as the magnet you might have in your wristband, but are still static magnetic fields, um, often um, sort of round, relatively large magnets. And there's been a couple of studies applying these sorts of static magnetic fields to biological tissue in sort of cellular environments, investigating whether they um, you know, change uh, uh, biological tissue, and then actually applying them to the brain to see if you can produce therapeutic benefits. At a, at a cellular level, um, these strong static magnetic fields tend to produce some changes, particularly in the metabolism in the mitochondria of cells. So the mitochondria are, are like the little sort of energy systems, little batteries or, or engines of our cell that, where a lot of the sort of energy processing um, goes on. And strong static magnetic fields seem to cause changes in the metabolism occurring in mitochondria for whatever reason. I don't think we, we fully understand what that might be. And there have been some preliminary studies um, applying some of these static magnetic fields to the brain. And some of them have actually shown some therapeutic benefits um, in conditions like depression. But none of those have been sort of adequately replicated in a way that you would you would hope to see. And in fact, what, there was a company that was formed in the US a number of years ago um, that attracted some, some decent funding and ran a couple of clinical trials of um, the stat static magnetic fields that were actually rotated in a, in a particular frequency to match a type of brain frequency. They showed preliminary um, benefits, but when that was then tested in very large scale placebo controlled clinical trials, it was shown not to work. Um, and that sort of line of research is now shut down. So I've gone on a bit of a, of a tangent away from your initial question, but the reality is I don't think we've got 
much of any um, evidence at all that the very weak um, static magnetic fields that you initially asked about, you know, change biological tissue in many ways, but that doesn't mean that there's not something in this sort of, in the potential effects of magnetic fields on biological tissue. And it's something we need to continue to, to, to look at, but um, TMS is something very, very different um, from, from, you know, the general ideas of using magnets for health. That's a, that's a very clear um, explanation of it. So, um, so thank you. The last thing just to honor our time commitment that I wanted to come to was, um, you know, it's obviously, uh, it's obviously a field of practice that comes very close to um, people's real stories day to day. Um, why did you choose this? You're a psychiatrist. You can choose so many different areas. What drew you to TMS? And um, are there any particular instances you can think of that, that gave you that pep in your step that reminds you of why you're doing what you're doing? Yeah, that's actually a really easy question to to answer although as with a lot of things you know i kind of stumbled into this field in general in some ways so i i was still completing my psychiatry training back in the late 1990s and i i actually went to canada to toronto to do some additional training um i got some exposure and training in tms there but i wasn't at that stage interested in using tms as a treatment for depression i actually was um my main interest was actually doing research in in patients with schizophrenia and there are ways you can use tms as an investigative tool so by stimulating the brain in various ways you can use it to sort of map aspects of brain plasticity and the function of different chemicals in the brain and i was quite interested in doing that um and so i came back to to, to Melbourne. Um, after a while, we were able to sort of piece together some money to start a, a small lab to start doing some of these experiments, but I still had very, very little funding. And this, this was in the dying days of the, um, the Victorian Kennett government. And for those of, uh, of us who were back um, and, and remember what, it, what the Kennett government was like, they were they were pretty controversial in Victoria. They made a lot of kind of social changes that that some of which people agreed with, some of which people didn't agree with. But they actually, um, you know, Jeff Kennett, before he left office, um, became quite enthused about um, needing to make, to take action on, on helping intervene with depression. Clearly, you know, after he left politics, he did um, a lot of work in this area with establishing Beyond Blue. But in the dying days of his government, the director of the service I was work, working in and I were able to, to convince the, the state government to give us a small amount of money to support getting a, a TMS machine that we could use in, in treatment. Now, again, I wanted to use this in the research we were doing in, in patients with schizophrenia. We actually wanted to start to do some of the studies looking at trying to treat auditory hallucinations. But the government was interested in depression, so we had to say to them that we would that we would use this machine in depression. Um, and of course, when they gave it to us, we had to try and 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 do this. And I was very skeptical that it was, you know, I'd read the studies that had already been done, and they were very small studies. Some of them showed benefit, some of them hadn't shown benefit. So I was very skeptical about. Um, what we would see in depression, but as I said, really wanted to use this um, in in these uh, this other patient group, but was obliged to start treating some patients. So we set up what we thought was a very rigorous clinical trial with a placebo control, and we started to treat every treat patients. And I had a 
I had a, a member of my research staff who was who didn't un, didn't know what treatment they were receiving, and he would do the the measurements of their depression. And I actually was doing the treatments. I was talking to these patients every day. Um, I didn't even have a stand to hold the coil. So I would sit there holding the coil over the, their head and uh, for a couple of hours every morning, I'd treat these patients. And it was really the dramatic impact that I saw in some of these patients on their lives that, that convinced me that this was something we needed to put time and energy because I was seeing patients who'd been depressed for really you know long periods of time, often you know, five, 10, occasionally 20 or 20 years or more, who would come back after three or four weeks and say, look, I've never felt, I haven't felt this good for you know, 20 years. I remember one patient saying to me, the only time I felt this good was on the first couple of days of my second honeymoon. Hmm. Now, I'm not, quite, I'm not quite sure what happened on a first honeymoon, but, but I, just, I distinctly remember that story. Um, and, 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 and we, we got in that initial clinical trial a really um, strong um, effect of the treatment over the placebo. And, and that sort of has led, you know, we've done 15, 20 clinical trials since that time. But it was really the patient stories and the, the impact that it would have on their life, the patients who would come back you know, three months later and say, look, I'm working again now, I'm looking after my kids, I'm doing all of these things that really convinced me that this was something worth sinking the next, what's turned out to be the next sort of 20 years of my life into. Um, and, and, I, and I think every bit of that's been worthwhile. What a great story, starting with scepticism and being converted over by the science and, and the stories of, of people's transformation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, look, absolutely. Look, I think that brings us almost to the end of our time commitment. Is there anything you feel we've missed that we need to touch on? No, no, I think you've, I think you've covered off on everything important. You know, I would just emphasize, you know, that um, a couple of things. One, you know, this isn't a miracle treatment. It certainly doesn't help everybody with, with depression, but, you know, a really significant percentage of patients who are in that more difficult to treat group will do really well with TMS, you know, in our in our hands, about 50% of patients get a really good clinical response. Maybe another 10 or 15% get some benefit and about a third um, it doesn't work for. Um, I think it's important, you know, if people are hearing this, to be aware that um, that widespread funding through Medicare is not quite there yet. You know, we're, we're hoping that it will be available in November of this year. There will be some limitations on that. Um, it's going to be pretty easy, I think, for patients to get an initial course of treatment. What Where the sting in the tail with the Medicare funding a little bit is, is that they haven't agreed at this stage to fund any form of ongoing or maintenance treatment. And so that's something we're going to, we're still continuing to work on trying to collect research data and, and, and do further studies to support getting further funding for that. So there's still work to be done, um, but we're certainly um, well down the track now. And, and hopefully that funding in particular will allow TMS to make a, a, a really great difference to a lot, lot more people's lives. Well, Professor Fitzgerald, thank you very much for your time today and sharing some of your science and your stories. We really appreciate it. You're, you're most welcome. Okay. Well, that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Professor Paul Fitzgerald. You can find us at talklink.com.au. Keep well and see you soon.